0: I am not one for either long marches nor short runs. If something were to chase me, whether it's an alligator, bear, or an angry aardvark, you better believe that I'm going to give up after a mile. When it comes to distance, I have the same thoughts as Gimli, who in the Lord of the Rings proclaimed that I'm wasted on cross-country. We dwarves are natural sprinters, very dangerous over short distances. Well, we have quite a distance to go regarding our understanding of Mao Zedong. But by the end of this episode, a former elementary school principal will have become the unquestioned leader of the Chinese Communist Party. He will accomplish this feat by living out the Chinese proverb of A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. The Long March, as it came to be called, certainly lived up to its name as it was an arduous journey of 6,000 miles, 18 mountain climbs, and 24 river crossings. To add to the grueling nature of the march, the Communists were forced to endure on average a skirmish a day. 368 days of suffering would go on to cement the rule of the most murderous dictator in world history. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is episode two regarding the life and legacy of China's most infamous dictator, Mao Zedong's Long March to Power. The Qing Dynasty had fallen into seemingly inevitable decay and been replaced by the Chinese Republic. As one would expect from the Chinese dynastic cycle, the transition was not smooth. Warlords promptly began carving out large swaths of territory in order to exert military dominance over the inhabitants. Fighting between these Junfas meant that the lifespan of a warlord was incredibly short. While the countryside waged a war of succession, the surviving members of the Beijing court continued to operate among foreign powers as the de facto regime of China. But the areas outside of Beijing were well out of their jurisdiction. In Making China Modern, historian Klaus Mohan points out the colorful nature of these would-be leaders. Men such as the Dog Meat General, a title which was earned through the warlord's favorite card game, rather than any eccentric dietary restrictions. Zheng Zhongchan was the name given to this particular warlord at his birth. His father was an alcoholic, and his mother was a full-fledged and self-proclaimed practicing witch. As an adult, Zheng became an opium addict, who found himself in charge of the Shandong province, the land that was requested during the ill-fated Treaty of Versailles negotiations. He violently positioned himself on the throne of what was decidedly a medieval court, complete with massive feasts and lavish entertainment that would soon bankrupt his entire fiefdom. Under the financial stress of his rule, the province's education system soon collapsed and Shandong began to slide backwards into a dark age. I bring up the dog meat general to flesh out some of the alternatives that existed within China. The decision to make a coalition between nationalists and communists likely doesn't make any sense at first glance. But when you factor in characters such as warlords like Zhang, who proclaimed himself the great general of justice and might, the story begins to become clearer. Chan ran Shandong province into the ground but the suffering was never borne by himself. Gifted another nickname of the General with Three Long Legs by the province's prostitutes, he maintained a harem of at least 50 prostitutes in order to prioritize his personal pleasures. A creature such as he could only exist in the proverbial state of nature, for he was said to have the physique of an elephant, the brain of a pig, and the temperament of a tiger. Molhan reminds us that without a single currency, unified national administration system, or unitary system of national defense, China became increasingly fragmented socially, politically, and economically. Historian Andrew Nathan accused warlords of creating the darkest corner in 20th century Chinese history, and Lu Xinpai claimed that warlords set back whatever chances there may have been for China to develop a more open, competitive, and democratic system of government. Keep in mind that the rise of the Communist Party will create some pretty bleak moments for China during the 20th century. Even with that foreknowledge, Pai still believes that China was worse off during the initial formation of the Chinese Republic. The Qing Dynasty had fallen, but it hadn't lowered the personal expectations of the Chinese. After all, this was one of the world's oldest and proudest people. The century of humiliation had just entered a new and more dangerous phase. Rather than humiliation at the hands of foreigners, The Chinese were disgracing themselves by succumbing to leaders such as Zhang, whom still others referred to him by the nickname of the Three Don't Knows General, because he could never say how many soldiers he had, nor did he know how much money he owed, or the number of wives that he had. The majority of the first advocates in China for Marxism were nationalists who sought, above all, China's salvation. This nationalist starting point became a continual thorn in the side of the Stalinist-Leninist-Russian authorities who sought to absorb the Chinese Communist Party in a place that was perpetually beneath the Soviet Union in their pursuit of international glory. The Chinese nationalists didn't care about the wider mission, however, The CCP's focus all the way up until a few decades ago under Xi Jinping was squarely focused within their own borders. From its inception, the CCP believed that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The very first publicly released missive of the Chinese Communist Party explains that the party sought to create a new society that would abolish private ownership, practice public ownership of the means of production, destroy the old state apparatus, and eliminate social classes. It proclaimed that, quote, the goal of communists is to create a new society in accordance with communist ideals. In order to make the realization of our ideal society feasible, the first step is the elimination of the present capitalist system. The elimination of the capitalist system requires strong power to defeat the capitalist countries. The power of the laboring masses, the proletariat, is growing stronger and is becoming more concentrated. This is precisely the result of class conflicts within capitalist countries. The form of this power is class struggle." Quote. For all of this to occur... The people must organize a revolutionary political party of the proletariat, the Communist Party, to lead it in the seizure of political power and in the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Throughout this founding document, the party makes clear that from the outset it was willing to work with anyone as long as it was against the capitalists and for the empowerment of Of themselves. Vladimir Lenin, who had triumphantly led the Russian Revolution with merely a small group of Bolshevik conspirators, felt that China, even in the midst of a state of internal conflict, wasn't ready for a small scale revolution. Rather, Lenin believed that the revolution must be a revolution of the masses a movement that he had previously disavowed for his own nation when it had come from the mouth of Trotsky and the Russian Mensheviks. Lenin became personally involved in the forging of an alliance between the newly formed Chinese Communist Party and Sun Yat-sen's Kumoteng Nationalists, a group that we will refer to as the KMT. Lenin reasoned that because China was an undeveloped agrarian and poor country, It was not yet primed for socialism. It first needed a nationalist bourgeoisie revolution in order to clear the deck. The two parties shared a common vision of an independent and strong China that would exist without foreign influence. A deal was sealed in 1923, and over the next four years, the two parties worked in conjunction with the Soviet Union to steadily increase their influence. While the CCP felt that they could work with Sun Yat-sen as equals, the leader of the Nationalists brought his own inner circle to the forefront of the alliance. Foremost among these advisors was his second-in-command, Chiang Kai-shek who would go on to feature predominantly in the story of Mao Zedong. Shang was the educated son of a wealthy salt merchant. Shang had worked closely with Sun Yat-sen for the prior decade and became the choice to head Wampoa Military Academy a Chinese offshoot of Moscow's Red Army Academy. Displeased by the century of humiliation, the young man had turned to the military for his personal salvation. Sheng's schooling had been steeped in classical education. He then proceeded to further develop his ruling philosophy by studying the military arts in Japan. After the Nationalists united with the Communists, he was sent to Moscow in order to then serve upon his return as the Wampoa School's commander, tasked with instilling nationalist revolutionary ideology among the school's soldiers. The National United Front that formed didn't remain united for long. One year after the promise of Soviet rubles had forged the alliance, its leader, Passed away. Sun Yat sen, the mentor of Chiang Kai shek, was a man respected by both sides of the party. The CCP to this day continue to refer to him as a forerunner of the revolution, and Mao called him one of his first political heroes. Gallbladder cancer robbed us of one of the great what ifs in world history. Sun's vision for China had been one in which poverty, rather than class exploitation, was the enemy. His aim was to build a prosperous society where the gains were then shared fairly among the working class. Mao's successor, Deng Xiaoping, a contemporary of Sun, adopted much of Sunism in letting capitalist elements into China. Deng even went so far in explaining his thoughts regarding economic philosophy and whether elements of capitalism could remain by claiming, I don't care if it is a black cat or a white cat. It is a good cat if it catches mice. One can't help but wonder what would have happened if Sun had managed to keep the CCP and the Nationalists aligned. It is perhaps possible to imagine a government whose economic philosophy largely matches the CCP of today, but they would have risen to power without being shackled by the burden of decades of genocidal bloodshed. The newly empowered Chiang Kai-shek turned on his Marxist allies almost immediately. In March of 1926, he used his position as commander-in-chief of the army to expel all communists from positions of high leadership. He then turned his focus outward, beginning what became known as the Northern Expedition, to seek a military solution against China's warlord. One would imagine that this purge, known as the Canton Coup, would result in war between the two former alliance members. But Shang handled this bloodless coup deftly. Shang knew the dangers inherent to this decision and immediately turned to the connections that he had formed while in Moscow to reassure Stalin's Soviet Union that the alliance was on stable ground. To prove his sincerity and as a nod to the CCP, he willingly fired the most hardline right-wing leaders of his own forces. There were three warlords in the north that Chiang Kai-shek needed to suppress. He addressed the united front, telling them that, quote, "...the importance of this fight is not only in that it will decide the fate of the warlords, but whether or not the Chinese nation and race can restore their freedom and independence hangs in the balance." In other words, it is a struggle between the nation and the warlords, between the revolution and the anti-revolutionaries, between the three people's principles and imperialism. All are to be decided now, in this time of battle, so as to restore independence and freedom to our Chinese race. Mao's home province of Hunan, was the first to be liberated during the Northern Expedition. But it wasn't easy. The KMT's second assault in Zhangxi stalled, and Sheng had to compromise on his anti-foreigner principles, negotiating with the British to end a strike in Hong Kong, which had put a kink in his supply lines. After the fighting resumed, two warlords, including Dogmeet himself, joined the fight in an effort to halt the Northern Expedition. The warlords, however, all acted as alphas, and the joining of their forces only sowed distrust and dissension among the nationalist opposition. After six months of campaigning, Chiang Kai-shek had brought seven provinces under his command. 170 million Chinese now lived under the joint rule of a somewhat fractured united front. It wasn't enough, however. On the verge of Shang's next military campaign, the nationalist leader again initiated a purge of his allies. Lin Bo Ku, the communist political commissar of the Sixth Army, was accused of attempting to turn international opinion against the KMT in order to facilitate the foreign bombardment of the city of Nanking. The joint British and American bombing of the city had commenced in response to the mass looting of the city by KMT forces. In the aftermath of this incident becoming public knowledge, Shang became committed to the idea of a violent purge of the communists living within the KMT's ranks. This was the peak for the Nationalists. At this point, the United Forces had successfully wrestled control of the North from a triad of warlords. The alliance had now run its race, and it was time to cut the dead weight loose. He tipped his hand on April 7, 1927 by claiming that communist activities had become socially and economically disruptive. Five days later, the Shanghai Massacre, or a white terror, was initiated. Communist union groups were rounded up and disarmed. The proletariat engaged in mass protests, but were met with rifle fire. The numbers are unclear, but thousands were likely killed, and a similar number were made to simply disappear. Over the next 20 days, more than 10,000 communists were rounded up and arrested as Sheng broke with the Soviet Union's demands regarding the inclusion of the CCP in what was now his party. That party was only halfway through the unification of China when it fired the first shots of what would become the Chinese Civil War. Sheng expected the first shot to be the only one necessary. Little did he know that he would soon be surrounded by enemies on all fronts. Falsely believing that his purge had eliminated the threat of the communists, Shang once again turned towards his unification mission, invading and subduing warlords in the East. The separation from the KMT allowed the CCP to openly push their Marxist agenda. Mao Zedong was sent to his hometown province of Hunan to survey the people regarding their readiness to enlist in the communist cause. The result was the largely successful, or at least initially successful, autumn harvest uprising. His success convinced him of two things. His first epiphany was that it was the peasants and not the urban proletariat who were the true revolutionary class necessary to open the locks of Chinese political power. It also reinforced in him the importance of the principles of guerrilla warfare. The CCP, decidedly not under the leadership of Mao at this point, set up their own capital city in Wuhan. Their capital stood in literal opposition to the internationally recognized capital of Beijing, which was the KMT's stronghold in northern Nanjing. Dividing his forces, Sheng led five encirclement campaigns to deal with the ever-widening threat posed by the communists. Each campaign followed the same pattern. Initial success by KMT military forces stalled against intense opposition from communist forces aided by the sheer emptiness of rural China's geography. Interestingly enough, the stalemate was broken via the intercession of Germany's Adolf Hitler. In the early 30s, it wasn't quite clear whether Nazi Germany would choose to rely on Japan or China as their primary Far East ally. The KMT made a compelling argument that they were the elite enemy of communism, despite their prior ties to the USSR. German aid, funneled through the KMT, helped to begin the process of industrializing China and modernizing the KMT's military. German generals arrived in China to personally discuss strategy with Chiang Kai-shek. Based upon the advice, Chiang began a war of attrition against the CCP, and established a number of key strategic choke points in anticipation of an eventual Japanese invasion from the East. Accepting the German principle of patience, which ironically the Germans wouldn't be able to hold on to for their own wars, the Fifth Encirclement Campaign was a rousing nationalist success. The KMT forces advanced via combat and then halted in order to make a series of fortified blockhouses every five miles. After the construction and staffing of the gunposts, the KMT would advance inward, before once again stopping and constructing another series of blockhouse fortifications. The communists were incrementally being pushed back and encircled inside of their capital city. The Civil War thus appeared to be drawing to an inescapable conclusion in 1934. Mao had once been the leader of the Jiangxi forces, but had been sidelined in 1932 after the arrival of 28 strict Bolshevik adherents. Under its new leadership, the Red Army adopted conventional warfare schemes, and the Marxists were subsequently decimated each time it directly engaged with Chiang Kai-shek's forces. Mao stewed on the sidelines, but he wouldn't have to wait there for long. With their defeat imminent, portions of the CCP decided to attempt a daring breakout of the KMT encirclement. They targeted a path of blockhouses that were defended by warlord allies of Sheng. These groups weren't as professional of a fighting force as the KMT, and they tended to be significantly more risk-averse regarding the subject of their own lives. After nightfall on October 16, 1934, more than 85,000 CCP troops silently abandoned the city under the cover of darkness. They bore their weapons and supplies on their backs, or on a few horse-drawn carts. It was a new low point in the short-lived history of Chinese Marxism. Each night, long columns of torches were seen snaking across the countryside of China an embarrassing retreat from their capital that would go on for more than a year. Mao would be the one who successfully shifted the narrative from one of defeat to victory. About two months into the march, Mao began to regain his prior influence over the CCP. Edgar Snow was the first Western journalist invited to tell the story of the Long March. His work is shamelessly filled with communist propaganda, but serves our interest in showcasing how the Long March cemented the place of Mao Zedong within the structures of political life in China. It was through propaganda such as this that Mao was able to wrest back control of his destiny. Snow's book, Red Star Over China, was released in 1937. The author paints a rosy picture of the attitude of the marchers, utilizing terms such as adventure, exploration, discovery, human courage, ecstasy, triumph, loyalty, and hope to go along with the sacrifice and daily suffering of the soldiers. Snow had a natural gift when it came to prose regarding the details of one of dozens of daring escapes along the way. This particular moment occurred in May of 1935. Snow reveals to us the journey. Through the wild mountainous country of Yunnan, the Yangtze River flows deeply and swiftly between immense gorges, great peaks in places rising into defiles of a mile or more, with steep walls of rock lifting almost perpendicularly on each side. The few crossings had all been occupied long ago by government troops. Shang was well pleased. He now ordered all boats drawn to the north bank of the river and burned. Then he started his own troops, and young Yun in an enveloping movement around the Red Army, hoping to finish it off forever on the banks of this historic and treacherous stream. Snow continues. Seemingly unaware of their fate, the Reds continued to march rapidly westward in three co- columns towards Lenkai. The boats had been burned there, and Nanking pilots reported that a red vanguard had begun building a bamboo bridge. Shang became more confident. This bridge building would take weeks. But one evening, quite unobtrusively, a red battalion suddenly reversed its direction. On a phenomenal forced march, it covered 85 miles in one night and day and in late afternoon descended upon the only other possible ferry crossing in the vicinity at Chaoping Fort. Dressed in captured non-King uniforms, the battalion entered the town at dusk without arousing comment and quietly disarmed the garrison, End quote. The CCP were harried in this way by the KMT every step of the way, to the point that they averaged a military skirmish each day. As mentioned in the teaser to this episode, the trek covered over 6,000 miles over the course of 368 days. They were forced to cross 24 rivers and climb 18 mountain ranges. Mao's reliance on the fundamentals of guerrilla warfare kept them going, and later would serve to inform significant portions of his military philosophy, much of which would later become enshrined in Mao's Little Red Book. Among the relevant passages to the Long March are such gems as The enemy advances, we retreat. The enemy camps, we harass. The enemy tires, we attack. The enemy retreats, we pursue. The game of cat and mouse continued for the entirety of the march. Snow provides us with the tale of one daring river crossing where the KMT had arrived in front of Mao's forces. Twenty-two guerrillas were sent to cross a bridge that had become mostly devoid of any planking. These men supposedly went in at night, hand over hand, across the chains holding the bridge in place over the chasm. With hand grenades held in their teeth, they leapt from the bridge in order to spring their ambush. Snow's words will serve to illustrate the event. He writes that, Probably never before had the Sichuan seen fighters like these, men for whom soldiering was not just a rice bowl, and youths ready to commit suicide to win. Were they human beings, or madmen, or gods? Was their own morale affected? Did they perhaps not shoot to kill? Did some of them secretly pray that these men would succeed in their attempt? At last, one red crawled up over the bridge flooring, uncapped a grenade, and tossed it with perfect aim into the enemy redoubt. Nationalist officers ordered the rest of the planking torn up. It was already too late. More reds were crawling into sight. Paraffin was thrown on the planking, and it began to burn. By then, about 20 reds were moving forward on their hands and knees, tossing grenade after grenade into the enemy machine gun nest. Suddenly, on the southern shore, their comrades began to shout with joy, Long live the Red Army! Long live the Revolution! Long live the heroes of Tatu ho Ever, his own propaganda artist, Mao released some of his own poetry on the subject of the Long March, writing that, The Red Army fears not the trials of the Long March, and thinks nothing of a thousand mountains and rivers. The Wuling ridges spread out like ripples. The Wu-Mang ranges roll like balls of clay. Warmly are the cliffs wrapped in clouds washed by the gold sand. Chilly are the iron chains lying across the width of the great ferry. A thousand acres of snow on the Min Mountain Delight. My troops who have just left them behind. The CCP was able to stay alive only by utilizing every play available to them in the guerrilla playbook. To cross the Yangtze, for instance, Mao's men dressed in stolen KMT uniforms and talked their opposition forces into sending the ferry over to aid their crossing. As much as the Marxists attempt to romanticize the event, however, the Long March was a horrific experience for those forced to endure it. Medics recall being obligated to leave behind anyone who was wounded and unable to walk at the pace necessitated by the retreat. The desertion rate was high, as soldiers had to face daily their enemies of fatigue, hunger, cold, and sickness. The original marchers gradually perished, but new members joined the CCP along the way. Mal Guanagong was one such individual, He explained his thought process by posing the possibility that if the People's Liberation Army won the Civil War, we could have shelter and land, and we wouldn't suffer from starvation, and we wouldn't be oppressed. It was easy for the rural populace to see Chiang Kai-shek as merely another warlord. After all, Sheng's northern expedition had defeated the warlords by using their own violent tactics against them. After winning, the KMT had merely started the next war in the East, and then they began the Chinese Civil War. Thus far, the ordinary Chinese had yet to see any benefits from the new governing power. The regular people of China were still maintaining rural lives entrenched in feudal poverty. They didn't particularly care who was in charge. They only cared about what those in charge could do for them. Although Marx never viewed peasants as important, He once referred to them as sacks of potatoes that form a millstone around the necks of revolutions. Rural farmers have always proven receptive to communist promises regarding land redistribution. Mao was at the forefront of those promising a better life under Marxism. Guanagong described Mao as a very simple person. He didn't wear smart clothes. He used old clothes we made ourselves, and they had patches. After he finished his meals, he would walk out and talk to ordinary people. One of those individuals that he conversed quite a bit with was He-Jehen, a woman that would go on to become his third wife. We already discussed his previous wives in the prior episode, but in case you missed it, his first wife was a part of an arranged marriage, and it is both claimed and likely true that the marriage was never consummated. Mao's second wife, Yang Kahu, was the daughter of Mao's favorite teacher. They had two children together, and she went on to live her life as a revolutionary for the cause of her husband. Partly due to the distance between them, and to some degree, because he was an immoral scumbag when it came to women, Mao began to cheat on his wife with He Jeheng in 1928, six years before the advent of the Long March. Yang was soon captured by the KMT, and along with her son, was tortured and killed. Although the first-hand report is widely viewed with suspicion, it claims that she defiantly proclaimed to her tormentors that, quote, you may kill me as you like, You would never get anything from my mouth. Chopping off the head is like the passing of wind. Death could frighten cowards rather than our communists. Even if the seas run dry and the rocks crumble, I would never break off relations with Mao Zedong. I prefer to die, she proclaimed, for the success of Mao's revolutionary career. She was 29 when she met her grisly fate in November of 1939. her husband didn't quite share her level of loyalty to their marriage vows. Mao had begun a sexual relationship almost immediately after meeting He Jiahen, a woman who was the stereotype of a true guerrilla Marxist revolutionary in the flesh. Mao was 34 and already married to Yang at the moment that he would simultaneously marry the 18-year-old woman who would come to be known as the two-gunned girl general. She earned that nickname after a meeting which Mao was attending that was rudely interrupted by enemy forces. Without a word or hesitation, she audaciously mounted Mao's own horse. Then with a gun in each hand, she fired at the enemy to ensure they followed her. And upon shaking the enemy, she returned the horse safely back to Mao. Only 30 women were allowed to accompany the Red Army when they broke out of the KMT encirclement of Wuhan. Six of those 30 were pregnant when the retreat began. There was no respite for these women. One eyewitness reportedly remembers seeing a baby's head literally dangling out of her mother while the march continued unabated. He Jehen was one of those six that were pregnant. None of the women were allowed to keep their child after it was delivered, for a crying baby could easily give their forces' location away to their ever-searching enemy. Again, it has to be pointed out, the CCP averaged a skirmish a day for an entire year. Mao and He's third child, a daughter, had to be abandoned almost immediately after birth. The Guardian provides great detail regarding the ordeal that he je went through, writing that It was the third time she was forced to abandon a child. Her first child with Mao, a girl, was given to a peasant woman when she and Mao had to flee their guerrilla base. Next came little Mao, who looked very much like his father, hence the nickname. He was two years old when the First Army began the march. No one could bring small children along, not even Mao. He Jehen wept before leaving little Mao in the care of her sister, who was married to Mao's brother. Mao did not even say goodbye to his son. He could not know that six months later his brother would be killed in battle, taking with him the secret of the location to which he had moved the boy for safety. He had not even told his wife. He, Jehen, could hardly bring herself to do the unthinkable again, only four months after she had torn herself away from little Mao. When she was asked to give the girl a name, she shook her head. She doubted she would ever see her again. Wrapped in a jacket, the baby was handed to an old lady, the only person who had not fled on hearing the Red Army was coming. At first she refused, saying she had no milk and could not possibly look after the child. But when she saw the handful of silver dollars and a few bowls of opium offered as payment, she changed her mind. Years later, he she was still tormented by her decision. I did not even get a good look at my baby. I wasn't even clear where exactly she was born, she said. The couple were able to have two more children before Mao moved on to his fourth and final wife. During the divorce process, he had He Zhehen committed to a mental hospital, the need for which was easily justified for she had continued to search for her three lost children. Looking closely at any and all children in an attempt to identify the standard oily ears and the particularly foul armpit odor, which she claimed all of Mao's children had. But like all marches, this prolonged one finally came to an end. The longest, continuous march officially ended on October 20, 1935. Of the more than 80,000 that had begun the trek, only 4,000 remained alive to tell stories that would be repeated for the rest of their lives. These red heroes would rise together and implore their people to carry through the hardship of their party's rule. After all, the standard Marxist reduction in their freedom and rations couldn't be as bad as what these people had survived. The reunification of the three armies in the communist stronghold of Shangxi was enough to give Mao time to stop and breathe. The History Channel describes the halt poetically, stating for the record that after enduring starvation, aerial bombardment, and almost daily skirmishes with nationalist forces, Mao halted his columns at the foot of the Great Wall of China on October 20, 1935. Waiting for them were five machine guns and some red flag-bearing horsemen. Welcome, Chairman Mao, once said. We represent the provincial Soviet of northern Shenzi. We have been waiting for you anxiously. All that we have is at your disposal. While separating fact from fiction is nearly impossible regarding the events of the Long March, it is clear that the march had forged the CCP squarely behind the rule of Mao Zedong. Part of this success was because of a deliberate policy to purge potential challengers by ordering them into ambushes which he had secretly coordinated with his Soviet allies. As a necessary part of the purge, good communist soldiers were sent with their commanders on what was unbeknownst to them suicide missions. As one digs deeper though, the narrative of the long march becomes even more dubious particularly at how difficult it was for the chairman. There still remain accounts that suggest that Mao either rode a horse or was carried in a litter the entire way. There is even one recollection that claims he had his garden bed carried for the entirety of the 6,000-mile trek. The justification for it was that tending to his garden had a calming effect on the chairman. But all accounts agree that the men who finished the Long March, particularly Mao, achieved a status that placed them above everyone else. Biographer Roderick McFarquhar drives home this point by revealing that the greatest strategic retreat in military history turned Mao into a living legend. These legends likely survived because Chiang Kai-shek didn't consider them to be a real threat. During the long march, the nationalist leader rarely threw his entire military might against the CCP. This explains why they were never able to force a final fight to the finish. Instead, Chiang relied on local warlords to do the fighting for him. This was for all practical purposes a loyalty test. Those that went after the CCP with vigor proved their loyalty and their rule was left intact. Those that refused orders drew the wrath of the KMT and were subsequently eliminated. Thus, some historians believe that the Long March is more appropriately described as more of a long, hurting exercise, with the CCP unwittingly serving as the bait rather than the prize. If this were the case, it backfired on Sheng. The communists used the Long March as their manifesto, proclaiming to the country that the Red Army were the heroes who were being chased by the villainous imperialists who utilized warlords to do their dirty work. Despite their desperation, the Red Army had abided by eight points of attention, which required them to treat peasants respectfully and to pay fairly for anything that they took. The long march had taken their Marxist message across the entire country to small villages that had never before been visited by a representative of the state. 200 million Chinese in 11 provinces had just been personally delivered the message that the communists were their only true option to end the century of humiliation. Mao was quick to seize on the propaganda, telling everyone that would listen in 1935 that the Long March, quote, "...has sown seeds in 11 provinces which will sprout, grow leaves, blossom into flowers, bear fruit, and yield a crop in the future. It was a victory for us and a defeat for the enemy," he said. Edgar Snow furthered the legend, writing, "...it is impossible not to recognize the Long March as one of the great triumphs of men against odds and men against nature." While the Red Army was unquestionably in forced retreat, its toughened veterans reached their plan objective with moral and political will as strong as ever. Their conviction had helped turn what might have been a terrible defeat into an arrival in triumph. While it seems as if nothing could bring these two mortal enemies together, There's always the misleading assumption that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In 1937, the Japanese provided the impetus to bring the KMT and the CCP together once again. This second united front was done to directly counter the Japanese invasion of the mainland. But this front wasn't exactly united. Chiang Kai-shek, the closest thing to a central government in China for the moment, had focused on internal pacification before external resistance. This meant that he focused on the communists, whom the peasants approved of, rather than the Japanese, who had claimed Manchuria in 1931. The Japanese had seized that territory as part of their unquenchable thirst for the resources required to rapidly industrialize. That quest would place them on a collision course towards war with the United States. They specifically took Manchuria for the coal and railroads that connected China to Russia. Although the people of Manchuria maintained an underground resistance, shek's response to the invasion was a mere no-resistance order. Without provoking a military response, the Japanese had successfully converted Manchuria to Manchukuo. The cost that they paid was a mere 400 lives. Having received a bite of the apple in 1931, the Japanese decided to take the whole thing in 1937. shengs decision-making was an example of real politics, which is typically not overly popular in the moment. In his thinking, a fractured China would be too weak to stop the Japanese. In order to unify the nation, he had to first eliminate the warlords and the CCP only then would China be capable of standing up to foreign powers. In his original calculations, he hadn't expected the Chinese Civil War to last for the better part of a decade. He was still pursuing his original goal of unifying China when the Japanese surged out of Manchuria and forced his hand. The Marco Polo Bridge, spanning a little bit less than three football fields, is located in the city of Beijing. Remember that Boxer Rebellion, the one where monks believed that humming in rhythm would protect them from Western bullets? The monks with harmonious fists were so successful that the Qing Dynasty had been forced into begging Western powers for assistance and putting down a rebellion led by their own people. As an obligatory thank you, the Qing Dynasty was nudged into signing the Boxer Protocols. One of these humiliating guidelines indebted the government of China to permit the stationing of foreign troops at 12 different transportation hubs. Japan had taken advantage of this particular protocol in order to move between 7,000 to 12,000 troops into the heart of Beijing at a treaty-designated spot on one side of the Marco Polo Bridge. After an incident upon which the two sides fired at each other from across the bridge, a lone Japanese soldier went missing. The Japanese demanded entrance into the city to look for their wayward soldier, who had actually just gotten lost while trying to find a bathroom to calm his upset stomach. The contingent of armed enemy soldiers were rudely refused entry and thus began to attack the city and force their way in in order to search for their lost comrade. Although the war didn't begin at this exact moment, historians now refer to this as the beginning of hostilities between the Japanese-Chinese during World War II, which in their textbooks is known as the Second Sino-Japanese War. The Japanese attacked the Marco Polo Bridge with their full forces and were barely repulsed by a regiment of 100 Chinese soldiers who were ordered to hold at all costs. Insultingly, the ceasefire that emerged required those heroic Chinese soldiers to apologize to the Japanese for their belligerence at defending their own territory. The 1931 real politic rationale for why Chiang Kai-shek ignored the Japanese annexation of Manchuria was still in play at this moment. A fractured China had no chance against a Japanese invasion except this time the Japanese were stronger militarily than they had been six years earlier. Worse, the KMT was weaker than it had been, with Sheng's civil war resulting in the Republic of China becoming even more fractured than it had been in 1931. Unable to ignore the invasion of his country any longer, he had no choice but to reform the United Front with Mao Zedong's CCP. At least, that's what everyone else thought. Shang was adamant in his refusal to align himself with Mao, to the point that he had to be literally kidnapped by two of his own generals. It was only while he was held at gunpoint that he agreed to the rejoining of their forces. The hastily constructed alliance officially paused the Chinese Civil War and organized the Communists into separate battalions which would operate under the control of Chiang Kai-shek. There are moments of the conflict where the two sides worked in conjunction heroically. After all, none of the Chinese had any love for the Japanese. By and large, however, the CCP only engaged the Japanese when they had a distinct advantage. Their guerrilla tactics proved incredibly effective at slowing the Japanese advancement while simultaneously preserving their own lives. The KMT forces, on the other hand, preferred a more conventional, direct approach and bore the brunt of the Chinese losses to the Japanese. One year into the war, the KMT actively accused the CCP of sabotaging the war effort after it had become clear that Mao's forces were bullying the Chinese people into joining their larger cause of flipping the nation red. There were even two instances in 1939 where the CCP actually ambushed their allied KMT forces. They would later falsely claim, of course, that they had thought that their opponents had been the Japanese. With friendly fire incidents rising, the KMT organized a blockade of communist-controlled territories while they were simultaneously fighting off the invasion of their country. We are nearing the end of this episode, so I would be wrong not to mention some of the atrocities that happened during this portion of World War II. The Nanking Massacre stands out first and foremost. The event is commonly referred to as the Rape of Nanking. The buildup to the taking of the city of Nanking by the Japanese was costly for both armies, with the Chinese utilizing a scorched earth defense in a desperate attempt to halt the Japanese advance. After the Japanese had succeeded in subduing the city, lawlessness seemed to hold sway for six weeks, during which it is believed that more than 200,000 citizens were killed and more than 20,000 women were sexually assaulted by Japanese soldiers. Even more grotesque seemed to be the way that these acts were encouraged by the commanding officers. Two Japanese officers even held a contest to see which one would be the first to murder 100 individuals with their swords. They both scored higher than the original wager. Females were dragged out of their houses, sexually assaulted, and then brutally murdered, often via mutilation. A U.S. surgeon put the total at 100000 for those murdered in cold blood, often in a position with their hands up in a final act of surrender. Missionary Ralph Phillips was there and testified to a U.S. investigating committee that he was forced to watch while the Japanese disemboweled a Chinese soldier and roasted his heart and liver and ate them. Racism was at the forefront of each act of brutality. Japanese commander Sakai Wu summed up his people's feelings towards their neighbors by declaring that the Chinese people are bacteria infesting world civilization. While the Nanking Massacre isn't particularly important to the rise of Mao Zedong, it is necessary to note it for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, there are times that the event is forgotten, such as in 2013 when the Japanese government approved a history textbook that completely left out any mention of the Japanese war crime. Secondly, it shows the ferocity with which the war for China was fought. In the American education system, we tend to ignore this period of Chinese history, as our immediate concern was more closely aligned to the plight of our World War II European allies. Thus, the European theater gets a great deal of attention, and the Pacific theater is largely forgotten. Between the years of 1939 and 1945, Mao and Chiang Kai-shek were locked in a fight to the death with the Japanese. Only Mao was willing to fight it at a half measure. That way, he would be able to preserve his forces for the inevitable resumption of the Chinese Civil War. Third, it showed the impossibility of the situation laid at the feet of Shang. His KMT forces were taking heavy losses defending their territory, while simultaneously looking over their shoulder for what felt like an inevitable stab in the back. And who would have blamed them? After all, this had begun with Chiang Kai-shek firmly planting the knife in the back of his political allies during the White Terror of the Shanghai Massacre. The fight continued to go poorly for the Chinese until the Americans entered the war. Their arrival into the fight, initiated after the surprise attack by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, forced the Japanese to make a sizable shift in their forced posture to their chain of islands that formed a bulwark intended to push the U.S. out of the Japanese sphere of influence. This happened despite the fact that the Americans clearly prioritized the European front before the Pacific. The beginnings of the Cold War can also be found at this moment, as the U.S. became the chief allies of Chiang Kai-shek, while the Soviets favored Mao Zedong. This went beyond each world power rooting for their chosen ally. The Soviets directly aided the northern CCP, while simultaneously refusing to allow the U.S. to drop off supplies through Kazakhstan and other Soviet provinces, which effectively blockaded U.S. aid from reaching the KMT. As the Japanese retreated from China in 1945, some battalions surrendered to Soviet forces without firing a shot. The confiscated Japanese weapons and artillery were directly handed over to Mao's forces. It seemed that the longer the war against the Japanese raged, the KMT weakened and the CCP became stronger. The Chinese Civil War resumed in March of 1946 six months after the unconditional surrender of Japan. Once again, the Soviets played a part in aiding the eventual victors. They refused to immediately pull out of Manchuria, and privately told the CCP to crowd their forces behind their lines. Thus, when the pullout finally did occur, the communist forces were already stationed in all of the key defensive locations. Promises of large-scale land reform, plus their reputation for putting the country first, swelled the size of their forces. Soon, entire divisions of KMT troops were surrendering without a fight. For these nationalist soldiers, it had been non-stop fighting for 18 years, most of which had been spent fighting at a disadvantage. Although Chiang Kai-shek had proven to be a capable military mind, he made a clear mistake when the war resumed. He had the U.S. airlift his forces into the communist strongholds, believing purely in the might of his military men to overcome a hostile enemy who was already entrenched in their own territory. This decision effectively cut off his own forces from an escape route. The situation was so absurd that President Harry Truman dedicated a portion of his memoirs to justify the delayed removal of defeated Japanese forces from the mainland, writing that, quote, "...it was perfectly clear to us that if we told the Japanese to lay down their arms immediately and march to the seaboard, the entire country would be taken over by the communists. We therefore had to take the unusual step of using the enemy as a garrison." until we could airlift Chinese national troops to South China and send Marines to guard the seaports. The U.S. chose to play an enhanced role in all of Chiang Kai-shek's decisions. After all, it was clear to all as soon as the bombs fell upon Hiroshima and Nagasaki that the Cold War had begun in earnest. The U.S. positioned 50,000 soldiers to guard strategic locations in Operation Beleaguer, Additionally, they loaned considerable sums of money and their excess military equipment to Shang. Impatience were the orders of the day. On the other side of the equation, the CCP remained patient and did not actively engage with the KMT forces. Rather they remained steadfast to the guerrilla tactics that Mao had perfected during the long march. Over the next year more than one million KMT soldiers would lose their lives in the northern provinces. These were the same areas that they had originally freed from warlords like the dogmeat general through working in conjunction with the Marxists. Towards the end of 1949, three years into the resumption of the war, hordes of red battalions streamed out of the north in an all-out invasion of southern China. At this point, Stalin advocated for a third power-sharing coalition between Mao and Sheng, But the chairman wanted nothing to do with it. Showcasing an independent streak that would continually drive a wedge between the Soviets and the CCP, Mao crossed the Yangtze. The Rutledge companion piece to world history reveals for us the inevitability of the communist victory, writing that, On October 1, 1949, Mao Zedong proclaimed the founding of the People's Republic of China with its capital at Beiping, which was returned to its former name Beijing. Chiang Kai-shek and approximately two million nationalist soldiers retreated from mainland China to the island of Taiwan in December after the PLA advanced into the Sichuan province, isolated nationalist pockets of resistance remained in the area, but the majority of the resistance collapsed after the fall of Chengdu on December 10, 1949. The quick exit of the KMT forces led Mao to quip that Sheng and the U.S. were our best suppliers of weapons. To this day, the U.S. maintains a verbal obligation to defend the interests of the people of Taiwan, whom for decades were referred to by U.S. policymakers as the real Republic of China. Sheng blamed others for his defeat, writing that, quote, after the fall of Kafeng, our conditions worsened and became more serious. I now realize that the main reason our nation has collapsed, time after time throughout our history, was not because of superior power used by our external enemies, but because of disintegration and rot from within. But the fact of the matter is that from the moment Mao lost power in the fifth encirclement campaign, he had patiently lied in wait until the time was right to strike. He had purged enemies and made friends with the rural people of China while on the long march. After securing leadership over the party, he was willing to reforge an alliance with what appeared to be a mortal enemy. Unwilling to make the same mistake twice, Mao weakened his enemy during World War II, while simultaneously benefiting from Japanese and Soviet weaponry. After the war ended, he let his enemy come to him, and instead of pouncing, he patiently won a war of attrition before striking south. Thus, the People's Republic of China was born, and the world has never been the same. In our next episode, we will examine Mao's ideological foundation, as well as the inputs that went into his distinctive personality cult.